When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fresh grass has been laid, and the Super Bowl trophy logos were painted on the field Tuesday. Whether you're a football fan like me or you're just in it for the commercials or the halftime show, you probably know that Super Bowl Sunday is just a few days away. The reigning champions, the Kansas City Chiefs, are going to head to Tampa, Florida for Super Bowl 55, where they're going to face off against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a team that won its only Super Bowl in 2003. The biggest draw to the game may be the two-star quarterbacks who will be playing. Six-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, who is 43 years old, going up against Patrick Mahomes, the 25-year-old, who won his first Super Bowl last year. But as with most things these days, the big game will be very different. Just 25,000 fans will be allowed in Raymond James Stadium, a place that normally seats around 66,000. But what's more remarkable to me is how the National Football League made it through this season at all. They didn't cancel a single game, even though several had to be rescheduled. Last week, the NFL, its players' union, and the CDC published a report on the measures taken to keep players and staff safe and how the lessons learned could benefit the public at large. So today, I sit down and talk to the NFL's chief medical officer about these findings and what to expect this Sunday. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. You know, in a typical season, it's about the Packers against the Bears or the 49ers against the Seahawks. It, it, there wasn't that spirit this year. This was very much about the NFL against this virus. Dr. Alan Sills is the National Football League's chief medical officer. I've known him for a long time. We're both neurosurgeons and we even worked together for a while. I first spoke to him about this back in July, during the preseason, about how the league planned to play their season safely. I wanted to talk to him now at the end of the season to find out how he thinks it all went. I'm just really grateful that we were able to get through the season without serious illness or, or adverse outcomes. I think we learned a tremendous amount along the way. And the thing that's personally and professionally most gratifying to me is that we were able to take our data and take our experience and actually apply it for the greater public good. And I think that's what you saw last week when we published this article with the CDC is, you know, what we learned in our NFL season did have a direct effect on our understanding of the pandemic and our ability to keep everyone safer. I think it was probably August or so and Dr. Fauci had done an interview and he basically said, look, I don't know how this is going to work, the NFL, how it could possibly happen. You got players, you know, and they're, they're closely clustered, hard to physically distance. Did you question it at any point that the season just may not happen or have to get canceled? I think I really didn't think in those terms. I really just thought about what's the, the medical challenge and the problem in front of us. And so I, I think sometimes people think we sort of put our head down and said, we're going to do this regardless. That was really never our mindset. Our mindset is we believe we can do this and we believe the protocols we have in place can keep us safe. But we're going to go where the data goes. And, and we were prepared to stop at any point if that's what appeared to be the safest thing to do. You think of football, again, you think of people 
being together, but also shouting and, and yelling, potentially putting a lot of virus into the air. That's what the doctors sort of see when they, when they watch something like that. What do we know now about how much that sort of activity contributes to spread? Were there some lessons learned here? There were definitely some lessons learned. And I think one of those is that being in a large environment or in our open air stadiums turned out to be a very safe place. Uh, we saw no evidence of on-field transmission. And, and let me dig into that a little bit. What gives us the confidence to say that is we obviously tested everyone every day. And for all those positive tests, we were able to do genomic epidemiology to dig into the viral fingerprint to understand exactly the transmission pattern. So we never saw transmission from one team to another team on game day, even though we did have at times players who were infected on the field. We obviously didn't know that at the time, but later their case, their, their test came back positive. And I think the other part of that is even though you see close contact between players, tackling, blocking, et cetera, given that every player wore a proximity tracking device, we found out that those interactions are very brief. And even when you sum them all up, it turns out it's not a lot of contact time. So I think there's something protective about the big environment, the flow of air, and the lack of contact time that prevented transmission on the field. You were also doing genetic sequencing. So someone has the virus and now you genetically sequence the virus. What were you specifically looking for? What was the value of that for you? Yeah, genetic sequencing was really key for us to understand transmission. If I want to know, did I spread it to you? We look at the fingerprint of those two viruses. If they're the same, it's not automatic that I spread it to you, but it's pretty strong evidence if we've been in conjunction with each other. Um, on the other hand, if the virus that I have and the virus you have have completely different fingerprints, then we know I didn't spread it to you. You got it from some other source. So, so at no point did one team or a member of one team transmit the virus to a member of the, the other team? That's correct. With your players, someone did come back with a positive test. What did you, what, what did you do for them? What other sorts of testing or screening or, or sort of evaluation did you do? Sure. So when anyone tested positive, obviously we immediately had them under the care of the team medical staff. They were instructed about monitoring. They were given a home pulse, pulse oximeter. They're monitoring their temperature. They're looking at their symptoms and they're having daily check-ins with the medical staff. But they were isolated away from the rest of the team and, and then family members as appropriate. When they got to the back end of their illness, everyone underwent cardiac screening before they could come back. They underwent three different tests to look at cardiac function. And again, they were assessed overall and they would gradually ramp up their activities to make sure that they didn't develop any symptoms as they were returning. So it's almost like our concussion protocol where you have to go through a graduated return to play with varying steps of exertion. We did the same thing for every one of our COVID cases, whether they had symptoms or whether they didn't. Do you know how many people got sick or required hospitalization? Yeah, so during the course of the entire season, um, there are three individuals that we are aware of that were hospitalized, each of them very briefly. Um, one, one player and, and two on the staff side. And that's out of roughly six or 700 infections total. Anybody die? No, no death. No, no and death. And no serious illness. There was no one who you know, had a prolonged hospital course or had you know, substantial medical complications. The mitigation strategies that you came armed with at the beginning of the season. What were some of, what were some of those and how did they change throughout the season? What did, you, what did you have to do differently? Well, when we started, we were requiring masks in almost all areas, but we didn't require them, for example, in weight rooms and we didn't require them on the practice field. And um, partway through the season, based on some of our early experience, we made those changes. The, the practice feel was a little different than a game environment because at practice, you do have people standing around and around each other a little bit more. So there's some stationary interaction there. So 
we began to require face coverings, either the, the mask or a face shield built into the helmets in the practice environment, and also in the weight room, because we thought not having a lot of people in the weight room would probably be fairly protective, but we did see some transmission early on there. But I think the biggest thing we learned, um, which is not shocking to those of us in the medical profession, universal masking works. It's the most effective strategy that we have. Eating together, very high-risk activity. You know, most people don't have a mask on when they're eating. So we did have to modify eating rules and spaces. We also banned eating on buses. You know, normally our teams would grab a box and get on a bus and eat after the game. So that's a really robust setting where someone can transmit if, if someone is infected. And what about travel, like planes or, or, or buses or whatever? Most airlines are requiring masks, but when you get your, your snack food or whatever, you, people will take off their masks, they'll have their snacks. What, what, do you, what do you think of that, just given everything you've seen with the NFL? Well, our teams really tried to avoid eating altogether on flights uh, because of the, exactly what you pointed out, that people are inevitably unmasked for, for part of that time. So we think that's probably the safest way to approach eating on a plane. But at times, teams are flying from the West Coast to the East Coast. It's a longer flight, and you know our guys eat a lot, so they like to eat frequently. So what we would try to do is stagger the eating so that everyone in the same row or maybe the people who are seated behind and in front of each other wouldn't be eating at the same time. In, in the beginning, it was 15 minutes of exposure to someone. Like you, you, If you were unmasked within six feet, 15 minutes of exposure, that was considered close contact. There was a paper that was written, I think it was based on a prison study, that basically showed it didn't have to be just 15 minutes with one person. It could be cumulative exposure with many people. And then the data came out of the NFL. What, what did this data add specifically around that? Well, we clearly saw that it didn't have to be 15 continuous minutes for transmission to occur. We saw transmission occur in less than 15 minutes, even less than 15 minutes cumulative time, if there was inadequate ventilation, if there was improper mask wearing. And, and that directly came out of our data and came out of some of the early cases that we saw. So we knew then that we had to modify our protocols and that, and that we were going to have to start thinking about those exposures and contacts in a very different way. When you modified some of these protocols, did you see a corresponding decrease in, in new infections, new positives? Well, we did because throughout the season, our test positivity rate was well below that of the general population. But we saw, particularly as you got into November and December, as the U.S. cases were spiking again, uh, we started to go up. So as we made these protocol changes, particularly in late November, early December, when we put everyone in what we called our intensive protocol, we saw a significant drop in high-risk close contacts based on the data from our proximity trackers. So that told us we were on the right path. Do, do you have any, any sense or, or recommendations for fans then who may be attending a game like the Super Bowl coming up? I think there's going to be 20,000 plus fans. What, what, do you, what do you think of that given all that you've learned over the last several months? Well, we've hosted over a million fans at our stadiums throughout the course of the season, and I think our, our teams did a great job with that. I mean, first of all, they made those decisions locally in conjunction with public health authorities. So once again, that wasn't the NFL just saying, we're going to host fans, by golly, no matter what. That was a joint decision with those local public health authorities. Secondly, we had really strict protocols for our stadiums exactly how people would come in and out, exactly how they would handle the seating. Seating was in pods, which meant that you had to be with someone that you sheltered with or were sharing risk with. There was spacing among all those pods. There was mandatory mask usage. There was contactless transactions, et cetera. If someone didn't comply, they were ejected. 
and we did eject some people from the stadium. So I think our fans showed that you can attend and do so safely. We then on the back end would track the data from that. We would go in and look at the test positivity rate, the hospitalizations, even the deaths in that metro area and the counties surrounding it for up to 30 days after each event to see if we could have any inkling that there was some effect on local case rates or any clustering of cases. And we didn't see that. So we've taken all of those lessons learned and applied that to the Super Bowl. Um, We'll have about 14,000 fans um, who will be what I'd call standard fans who will be going through that same protocol. We're also going to have 7,500 vaccinated healthcare workers who will be in attendance. Yeah, that's 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 going to be quite a moment, I think, for to see those healthcare workers at the Super Bowl. How hard would it be to replicate what you were able to do at the NFL? We're talking about schools. You're talking about other institutions in our society. I mean, the NFL's. I mean, you got money, you got testing, you got all those things. How hard? How hard was it? When you boil it all down, it wasn't the fact that we tested every single day. It wasn't the fact that everyone wore a fancy proximity tracking device everywhere they went. What prevented transmission was mask usage, avoiding in-person meetings, staying in the open-air environments, not eating together, prompt symptom reporting, isolation of anybody that's exposed. And I do think that can be applied to youth sports, to schools, to businesses, to places of worship, entertainment. I mean, it was quite a task you took on. You came on to to basically, uh, as a neurosurgeon, deal with concussions in the NFL and you were handed a pandemic. It's kind of, kind of incredible. Well, it was an amazing team effort. This isn't about one person. I mean, we had an incredible team of people. And that's, I think, what got us through this is it was all of us against this virus working together. And I would say that extends even beyond the NFL. We've worked really closely with the medical staff and advisors of NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, uh, the NHL and leagues around the world. So as a sports medicine community, I don't think we've ever worked more closely together and collaborated. And I think that's a really important lesson going forward and also one of the really gratifying parts of this. Look, I thought that playing football during a pandemic with all the contact that's involved, all the close proximity, was a bad idea. I was worried that economic pressures to have a season would blur the league's ability to keep its personnel safe. But I got to tell you, I applaud Dr. Sills, the NFL, and his players union for completing their season and for sharing the lessons they learned with the CDC and other sports organizations. These are lessons that could benefit all of us. Now, if you are planning to watch the Super Bowl this weekend, try to do it at your own home with the people you live with. If you're attending a party, stay outdoors, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your masks, all the things we've been talking about, they don't change even on Super Bowl Sunday. You won't be alone. All those fans at the Super Bowl are going to be given KN95 masks to wear as well, even the ones who've been vaccinated. Before I get to the credits, Valentine's Day is around the corner, and I'd love to hear from you. How has the pandemic affected your relationship? Do you have any interesting stories you'd like to share? What are your plans for Valentine's Day? We are interested in hearing about how coronavirus has impacted your relationships, and I want you to please record them and send voice memos to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might include them on an upcoming podcast. We'll be back Monday. Thanks for listening. Coronavirus Fact vs. Fiction is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer. Raj Makija 
is the Senior Manager of Production Operations. This week's episodes were produced by Anne Lagamayo, Rachel Cohn, Emily Liu, Aaron Mathewson, Madeline Thompson, Jordan Gasporé, Zach St. Louis, and Zoe Saunders. Our medical writer is Andrea Kane. Nathan Miller is our engineer, and David Toledo is the team's production assistant. Special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seely of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.